as we remain standing to hear that word of the King from the Gospel of John, chapter 18. Let's turn in your Bibles there if you have them. If not, listen attentively as we consider this narrative, this very important climactic narrative in the life of our Savior, in fact, in the history of the world. I'll begin reading at verse 33 through verse 38 from John 18. Now hear the word of our God. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, calling Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into this world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews, and he said to them, I find no fault in him at all. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, who gave us these words of this narrative many years ago of the truth, we ask that you would open our eyes and our hearts now to the truth, that we might know the truth and the truth would set us free. Because the Son will set us free indeed when we call upon Him and we bow to Him in truth. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would be pleased to save us from our sins. And our great Father in heaven, who has decreed all things, we ask that you would be glorified in the preaching of your word. And so, Father, we ask that now you would be pleased to send forth your word in a manner that would bring forth the fruit that would please you and glorify you, so that as the waters do cover the sea, so the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the entirety of this earth. May that be true in our own hearts now, so even Lord Jesus, come, and come quickly. And we pray this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, after a rocky start to the morning, and here we are, everybody's clocks being a little confused and thrown off. It's great to see the wonderful crowd, as I was mentioning to somebody, you guys are hardcore worshipers. And that is something that God is pleased with, because that's why He saved us. He saved us, and He sought us, that we would be worshipers in spirit and in truth, for such is that which God seeks. And here you are, and we are very thankful that we can gather together before the face of God in Zion, and hear of His voice, and to sing of His praise, and let our voice be caught up together with His as the great King leads our praise and leads our worship. This is a day that we mark along with the, the history of the church of a very particular day. 
that marks the beginning of Holy Week as we consider Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem to accomplish that for which He was born and for which He gave His life and for which He came. When John the Baptist began preaching, he began preaching, pointing to Jesus. And he says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And what he meant is that Israel's king had finally arrived and the kingdom now is upon us. And this was the same message that Jesus carried on throughout his entire ministry. He went preaching the kingdom of heaven. This is the same ministry that Paul continued, that he preached the kingdom of God. And when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that day, he was clearly announcing in no uncertain terms that he was the Messiah the long-expected king that would deliver his people from all of their oppression. He would lead them in this new dynasty, a, a new dominion on the earth. And yet God's kingdom has been often misunderstood. Historically so, it had been that way from the beginning. Jesus here is clarifying some of those misunderstandings. And what we see is an exchange between Jesus and Pilate, which illustrates the very nature of God's kingdom is quite different from any other kingdom that this world has ever known. Anything that we could see, anything that we've been used to. And today I want to speak to you about the nature of God's kingdom on that day when Jesus became king. The kingship of God has always been a part of God's redemptive plan here on earth. This is a point that has been argued against on the basis that when Israel asked Samuel for a king like the nations, most of Samuel's speech to them was about the dangers and the foolishness of the kind of monarchy that they requested. And from that, many interpreters of the Bible have concluded that it wasn't in God's plan all along for Israel to ever have a king, that God was always going to be their king and no one else. Well, this particular view has led many to a wrong view of the civil magistrate and government or even eschatology that has plagued the church for many years. But since the fall of man into sin and the dark forces of evil took over reign here on earth, God's people would need a king to deliver them and to establish the kingdom of God in heaven here upon the earth with humanity as part of God's new creation. A very brief survey will show that this has been the case from the beginning in redemptive history. When God established a covenant with Abraham, He includes in that covenant that kings will come from Abraham and nations from Him will be blessed. Nations from all over the earth. 
And yet here we have a foreshadowing, even in the covenant with Abraham, of a coming king. And we have a, a, even a, a greater image of that foreshadowing when Abraham goes and he defeats the kings, comes back and he's met on the way back by Melchizedek, whose name means king of righteousness, but who was king of Salem or king of peace. He was a king. And Abraham gave Melchizedek a tithe, the 10% of what he had, and Melchizedek blessed him, and he gave him bread and wine. And we have here this great king, priest, who is blessing Abraham. We see later that Abraham's grandson, Jacob, blesses his 12 sons on his deathbed, and when he comes to Judah, he blesses Judah with the kingship. In Genesis 49.10, he says, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And the word Shiloh there could be taken as that to whom it is due, until that to whom it is due comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. We see throughout Numbers, There's an anticipation of Israel having a king, even including the prophecies of Balaam when he says a scepter will rise out of Israel. And it's anticipated in Deuteronomy as Deuteronomy anticipates Israel having a king in the coming days. And in the latter part of Deuteronomy particularly gives instruction that when they do have this king, the king has the law of God, and here is what he is to do. So the kingship from the get-go in God's covenantal dealings with, with fallen man has always been anticipated, but yet it has been quite misunderstood and sought for in the wrong way. God was always going to be king. He always has been. By virtue of Him, of who He is, just being the Creator, all sovereignty belongs to Him. No one has given that to Him. He has it by by who He is. But God was always going to be a king. There was never ever a question about that in God's mind, or even in the way He revealed that to men. So that even when an earthly king was on the throne, the earthly king would be a a vice regent of God. During the time of the judges, the people fell away grossly into idolatry. And when you fall into idolatry, that's true for them, it's true for us, but when we fall to idolatry, we reject God's sovereignty. We reject God's rule over us. That's what's going on when we turn to idolatry. In Judges 2, verses 10 through 12, it says, When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which He had done for Israel. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and they followed other gods among the gods of whom the people all around them and they bowed down to them 
and they provoked the Lord to anger. When God's sovereignty is rejected, it's always enveloped in idolatry. And when God acted to deliver His people in the time of the judges, He delivers His people from the Midianites. He did it by the hand of Gideon. And very particular to Gideon was the fact that he wanted to make sure that God was, they wanted, he wanted to make sure that the people understood God was delivering them, so he whittles the army down. And he whittles it down some more. And with 300 people and very uncustomary kinds of weapons, now God, through Gideon, leads Israel to great victory. But then the people, the men of Israel, rise up in Judges 8.22, and they come to Gideon, and they say, the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, both you and your son and your grandson also, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. And they missed the point. They missed the idea right there, that behind their request in this, we can see their motive. The people attributed this success to Gideon and not to Yahweh. Gideon rejects their notion, but he does it in a bit of a disingenuous sort of way. We see great inconsistency there. He turns to idolatry, and he ends up naming his son Abimelech, which means my father is king. It's in this context now that Samuel comes on the scene, Samuel being the last judges of that era, and he comes on the scene, and when the people ask Samuel for a king like all the other nations, the sin that the people had was not in the asking for the king, but in the rejection of Yahweh himself as their king. And to reject Yahweh as their king meant that they would not trust Him. They would not accept the kind of kingdom that God had desired for them. Again, we see their request was rooted in idolatry. Yeah, they merely wanted a warlord who would deliver them from the worldly oppressors so that they could enjoy their personal pursuit of peace and affluence. That's what they wanted. They wanted a king to advance their own personal and physical welfare. That's what they wanted. But they were not interested in God's program. And this is why Samuel's speeches were all about the dangers of the kind of monarchy that they were requesting. We want a king like the nations. So what does God do? He, he gives them a king in the type and kind that they asked for. He gives them Saul. He gives them Saul, a man who is head and shoulders above all the other men. He gives them the best human specimen for the job, according to the way they were asking. They wanted a king like the nations, and so God gives them one. 
A king that did not obey God. A king that would take matters into his own hands. Who would not trust the Lord. Who would do what was right in his own eyes. And the nature of that kingdom would produce nothing better than anything that the world could offer. Oh, he won a few battles. The Jews, for most part of their history, kept misinterpreting the nature of God's kingdom here on earth. It wasn't that they didn't have enough revelation to understand. It was the fact that they didn't have the faith to believe it. I would say that a lot of Christians make the same error today that the Jews were making back then. They were hoping for a kingdom. And many Jews are thinking about a kingdom in terms today that is idolatrous. But that day when Jesus rode into Jerusalem lowly and riding upon a donkey, he openly was declaring that he was the promised Messiah. Israel's long-awaited king. The king that had been revealed from the Scriptures all the way back from the beginning. And now here he is. And after the arrest, those same people who had been shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, only days from that time would be shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Because he wasn't the kind of king that they were looking for. In the current passage, we see Pilate confronting Jesus, inquiring about kingship. It is in this interchange that Jesus reveals something quite different about the nature of His kingdom than what was true of any worldly kingdom. Jesus says about the nature of His kingdom, My kingdom is not of this world. It's not from here. This is a kingdom that did not originate here on the world or the earth. It was, it was a kingdom that had originated from heaven itself. This is God's kingdom now come down to earth. That's the idea. But its origin is not from this world. It's not of this world. And therefore the nature of the kingdom is not like the worldly kingdoms that we know. When Jesus speaks of the world here, He's referring to the world system that's under the rule of the dark forces led by Satan himself. That's the world He's referring to. It is not like the kingdoms of the world. Satan is called the ruler of this world. When Jesus confronts the Pharisees in John chapter 8, He says to them, you are of this world. And then a few verses later, he goes on and says, and you are of the, your father, the devil, who is the father of lies. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 that the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. We are called as the church to be in this world, but not of this world. 
And so to be of this world is to be of the world system in which the enemy, the great dark forces led by Satan, governs and and rules and directs. And the kingdoms of this world are the expression, the physical expression of those dark forces at work. And while Jesus' kingdom was not from here, it was coming to here, to the earth, to stay. And up to this point in history, since the fall of mankind into sin, the dominion of man upon the earth that was forfeited to Satan and held under the dark forces of the evil one. And Satan has ruled the kingdoms. When he tempted Jesus and took him up on the high place and he says, Jesus, I'll give you all of these kingdoms if you but bow and worship me. In a sense, they were his to give. At least at that time. Satan had ruled the kingdoms. He led these worldly kingdoms against God and against God's people and against God's plan. And what we see in the narrative is Jesus and Pilate. Here we have a climax of a great historical development in Daniel chapter 7 that we read earlier, it was in the part of a greater context that Daniel was prophesying about four beasts, which were four kingdoms. The first one in which Daniel was prophesying in the context was, was the Babylonian kingdom. And after that would be the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. And after that, under Alexander the Great, would be the great Grecian uh, kingdom. And then would come Rome. That fourth beast, which was unlike any of the others with ten horns that came out. And, and here he was, his, his teeth were like iron. And here was the representative of that fourth dominion, that fourth kingdom, the Roman kingdom, in Daniel's prophecy, face to face, With the other one in Daniel's prophecy, the Son of Man, to whom the Ancient of Days would give an eternal kingdom. And that kingdom would overshadow and defeat all of the other, and that kingdom would be an eternal kingdom. And that's what the kingdom is about, what he is Going on right now, you've got Pilate and you've got Jesus. And you've got the kingdom of God coming into confrontation with the kingdom of the worlds under the sway of the devil. And we have this great climax in historical development. Little did Pilate realize that this interchange between him and Jesus was about the rule on earth. And it would be so profound There are two men's names given in our historic confessions, whether that be the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. And they both are representative of two kingdoms. One has already been defeated. 
And that's Pilate. Not just Pilate, but Rome. And not just Rome, the kingdom of darkness and Satan that governed it. And the eternal kingdom of God has come in. And it has come down. And Jesus has bound the strong man and plundering his goods. And the kingdom now is growing and growing and growing. And it is growing not alongside the kingdom of the enemy. It is growing at the expense of the kingdom. And you're not going to get that from the headlines. But you will get it from the truth. Pilate and Jesus. This is the last kingdom of the world. Now facing the kingdom of God. For the dominion here upon the earth. And guess who wins? But the nature of God's kingdom is not like the world's kingdom. Jesus stated to Pilate, if my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would fight. They would come and deliver me from the Jews. But since his kingdom was not here from here, that is not the way his dominion operates. That's a profound thought that requires a lot of reflection. My kingdom is not of this world, for if it were of this world, it would act like the world, it would do like the world, and my servants would come and fight just like the world, but that's not the way of my kingdom. The kingdom of the world is violent. They use war and force and military might to achieve their dominion. Even David, in the height of all of his strength as the king of Israel, when the state of Israel was at the pinnacle of strength, David the king said, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. David understood who delivers. David understood who was the true and real king. David understood you do not win a single war with military might, but only by the will of God. David understood that we can only win by the Spirit of God. It is not by power, nor by might, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. And what you have to do is believe that. You have to believe that with all of your heart. Or else you're going to be just like the world. Of the world. But Jesus said, He would never reach God's objectives if He did that. What Jesus was revealing is a completely different view of the nature of a kingdom that the Jews were expecting and the world has never known. They expected some great political leader that would come and use the, the military might and the forces of humanity to overthrow worldly enemies. And this is how some Christians also think about the kingdom today. 
They think about it in terms of outward and physical landmarks or a particular nation that's been reestablished in 1948 over in the Middle East. And thinking about it in terms of political might or military armor or Americana. And while they are doing that, they reject God's power while attempting in the flesh some kind of worldly victory. When God's people fight battles in the arm of the flesh rather than in the power of God, it is not only idolatrous, it is blasphemous and is not the nature of the kingdom. I've heard... Christians say it's time to pick up arms, defend our land against tyranny, for it's too late for the gospel. That's exactly the error that the Jews made that led to their rejection of Jesus as king. That led to the rejection of God as king. They are not looking for God to be king. They simply want the present physical environment to be conducive for the personal peace and pursuit of affluence. The character of the kingdom of God is quite different from that altogether. The kingdom of God does not think like the kingdom of the world because the way that the world thinks is foolishness with God. The world's way of doing things is by human ingenuity and force. Be careful you don't trust in your military might or in your technology. The way of God's kingdom, however, is with service and love. Remember when the disciples came and Jesus was telling them that the Gentiles lorded over them, but if you're going to be first, you need to be last. And if you're going to be the greatest, you need to serve. The way that the world thinks is one of dominion and power and might, and, and yet God's ways is serving. Husbands, if you truly want to be a good head and leader and authority of your wife, then you serve her. This is the way of the kingdom. This is the way of love. But when you turn it around and you become the tyrant of your home, that's the way of the world. The world's motivation in their kingdoms is idolatry. The motivation for God's kingdom is God's glory here upon the earth. The world's objective is world overthrow and dominion for power. The kingdom of God's objective is to bring in a new creation to express love and peace. The kingdoms of the world operate by coercion. But the kingdom of God operates by volunteers. The kingdom of the world is carnally and temporally expressed. But the kingdom of God is spiritually appraised and eternal. Now notice here, I do not contrast 
physical with spiritual. That is a Gnostic antithesis that we do not embrace. Because when the, we, we embrace this world and this earth, we embrace the place that God has made here and called it good. We embrace the incarnation. We embrace the resurrection of Christ and our own future resurrections, which all have to do with physical. But the problem is being carnal in that physical realm. The kingdom of God is about God's heavenly rule here upon the earth. And that's what we pray. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done here on earth as it is done in heaven. The same beautiful way that it's done so perfectly and every angel in heaven obeys your voice perfectly. Let that be done here, O God. Let your will be done here, here on earth. Kingdom of a world, of this world, it's about man. The kingdom of God is about God's rule here. See, God's objective in all of this is expressed in Habakkuk 2.14, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's the objective of the kingdom of God here upon the earth. This is what we pray. And we're praying when we ask for the will of God here on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying for the character of God to be displayed in the peoples all over the world. The character of God in His people. Because that's where the kingdom begins. It begins in the heart. Jesus said the kingdom of God is, does not come with observation. Nor will they say, see here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. Any kingdom endeavor that is not about growing the gospel in the hearts of people is misled. The character of the kingdom has been illustrated a number of times and Jesus was trying to express this. This is what the entire epistle of Matthew is about. It's about Jesus coming as king and showing what the kingdom was like and showing what it's going to look like and where it's all going. And He shows them about the character of this kingdom when he begins his sermon on the mount with the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are humble. Who are broken. Blessed are, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn. Who who mourn over their sins, who are broken because they're sinners and they repent and they know that they've displeased God, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek. They will inherit the earth. Blessed is those who 
hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom. Or we have expressions that Paul gives. For the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. See, the kingdom growth does not come with observation. It does not come by metrical, uh, measurable metrics. It comes in the growth of kingdom character in the hearts of God's people. That's what you need to be about in your life. You need to be about this character. And that character can only happen through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit when one is born again with the power of the Gospel. The character growth in people's lives is what causes the kingdom to grow. And this is what will cause the knowledge of God to cover the face of the world as the waters do cover the sea. It's about the gospel. It's about the character the gospel produces. And this character is only going to come about, and it only did ever come about, if Jesus defeated the dark forces of the dominion that prevented this very thing from happening here on earth. See, this is a different kind of kingdom. A different kind of kingdom is coming here. It will be a kingdom that will spread peace, not war. It will spread love. And this is what Jesus was about to do. He was about to cast down the dark forces of this world and great dominion over them. He was going to claim with His scepter of righteousness that He has defeated the dark forces. This is what He says, but I cast out demons by the Spirit of God. Surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. God's kingdom is about the dethroning of world kingdoms in order to replace them with one whose power is the power of the servant and whose strength is the strength of love. You will see God's kingdom when you see humility and service and love spiritually abounding in the lives of people. Because the nature of the kingdom is always inside out. It's always from the heart to the body. And the weapon of the kingdom now is expressed in this dialogue between Jesus and Pilate. Jesus says, for this cause, being a kingdom, I was born and I have come into this world that I would bear witness to the truth. Pilate snarls at this. What is truth? That's how empires cope with truth. They make up their own truth. Creating facts on the ground. In a depressingly normal way of violence and injustice. Oh, you see it very clearly today, do you not? They snarl at the truth. 
The world suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. And Jesus comes to undo that suppression. God becomes king here on earth as He is in heaven, so that the hearts of men will accept the truth. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus says, I am the resurrection. Jesus says, when you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And when you know the truth, the Son of Man will set you free indeed. Pilate is merely recoiling at the truth because Satan is a father of lies and he has kept a guard over, a veil over the hearts of men so that they are deceived. And that's how the world goes about its functioning. That's why He controls them because of the deceptive lies. But Jesus comes to dispel the darkness with His light and the lies with His truth. This is His sword. This is truth. He says in John 17, Thy Word is truth. So as we consider the work that Jesus came to do, He came to defeat the dark forces that keep people in the deception of believing lies, where sinners suppress the truth. Jesus comes to restore it, and it's important to understand the correct perspective of the kingdom of God has an entirely different character. It's got a different weaponry. It's got a different manner. It's got a different motive. It's got a different objective. It is the kingdom God's kingdom come here. Our king reigns. Our Jesus is on the throne. And he reigns with a scepter of righteousness and with the sword of truth. So today we need to bow to this King Jesus because he ever lives. His kingdom is enduring and it is forever. And we need to be about this new humanity that He has created us to be. That He has redeemed us to be. The kingdom must be in you. And not just about you. Because it's going to change the character of this world by changing the character of fallen men with the power of the Gospel. And we need to be about sharing the good news of Jesus Christ and His Lordship as we pray that His will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your goodness to us in sending us a different kind of King. A King that we were not looking for or even expecting, but something so much more glorious than we could have ever come up with ourselves. We only knew of the darkness of this world. We did not know how bright that light could be. What glory that there is for us. How thankful we are that You have shown us in Christ the truth. And the truth has set us free. We pray that as we continue to move forward in this kingdom that You have established and You're growing in our lives and You're growing through our lives out into this world of darkness, we pray that the light would shine brightly from our lives as we reflect Your glory so that Your glory can cover this world as the waters do the sea.
May we love our neighbor as ourself. Love our God with all of our heart. May we serve one another. May we remain humble servants of Almighty God. And so we pray that you would bless us with the gospel. May that be maintained in our own lives so that your name would be hallowed here. That your will would be done here on earth in our lives as it is in heaven. We give you this day, we give you our lives in Jesus' name. Amen.